depends on the hidden insomnia of the cogito, or how overthinking things tends toward paralysis. By Lee Scrivener upon seeking slumber, we contend against stimulation. At first our fight is physical. We trade our stiff, constrictive clothes for softer, looser ones or none at all. We turn off the stereo and the lights and put down our phone. If we have loud neighbors, we might resort to earplugs. And now to sleep. We think. We settle ourselves and lie supine, the very image of death. But we are not dead. Amid this new sensory void, we have reduced ourselves to a kind of disembodied thinking thing. The dark, hushed room makes no explicit demands on the attention. Thus, our minds, so used to attending, now cast about in search of some other ready target, some plaything. For a few moments, after ignoring our bodies all day, we become undisembodied, we hear our heart beating in our ears. We are just the fold of a sheet that tickles our left shoulder blade. However, we are soon bored by the surrounding sensory minuta, our inhalations and exhalations or those of our sleeping mate, domestic ticks and rustles, distant engines. The mind soon turns away from them and fixes on the object of most interest in the room, itself. In the absence of external stimuli, we now fix our thoughts upon the intangible, interior landscape of our own consciousness. Objects and events that vied for our attention during the emails, escalators, conversations, search engines, deadlines, traffic return to a synonymic form. Our minds become awash with worries, regrets, ambitions, or mildly amusing but largely pointless reveries. And in the relative absence of physical stimuli, these often get blown out of proportion, becoming fixations or obsessions. Molehills become mountains, until we realize that, if we have any intention of getting to sleep, we must chase away these pesky mnemonic stragglers. And now to sleep. We remind ourselves. Our fight becomes mental now. We turn to attention management. We try to tune out or become inattentive to all these quotidian residue and bring our mind to the placid, oblivious lull we find more conducive to slumber. We direct our attention to attention itself and willfully try to curl it towards some vacuity devoid of interest such as clouds or monochromatic paper, or engage it in some rote task like the proverbial counting of sheep. Not far into our shepherding inventory, however, the mind becomes increasingly distracted, again by itself. But it is not the content, these prancing sheep, that so fascinates it this time. The mind now critically reflects upon the thinking faculty as a faculty. It engages in metacognition. Subject becomes object. Why can't I sleep? The thoughts think. Because I can't stop thinking indeed I am now thinking, with increasing alarm, about my inability to stop thinking. What alien agency is keeping me thinking when I, the thinker, would rather stop now? Though the thinker wants nothing more than to stop thinking, one nagging thought remains, isn't thinking about the will to stop thinking itself a continuance of thinking? Ah! A new problem on which to think. In this simulation of the onset of insomnia we see how troublingly close in proximity are thinking and willing. There are not many things we can will or desire without forming, or without having already formed, a train of relevant thoughts attempting to convey them hence. And though our thoughts can sometimes seem to have a mind of their own, we wouldn't be able to string two of them together if there wasn't, ostensibly, some supraordinating volitional agency directing their flow without which our trains of thought would become unhooked freight cars flying off the tracks. Usually, thinking and willing work hand in hand to get us what we want in life. But in insomnia, our will to sleep seems stymied by itself. Thoughts towards that end appear to thwart their own attainment. This is an example of what the American psychologist Daniel Winner has called the ironic process of mental control. Winner describes how, when our minds try to manage themselves, or in the case of seeking slumber to bring themselves to heal or resist thinking about this or that, they enter a kind of vicious cycle, that metacognitive level of our thinking checks up on thinking itself at or as an object level and then feeds off perceived problems, for example comma that thinking is occurring at all that were, in fact, caused by the initial metacognitive monitoring. It is perhaps of no small significance that, in these initial steps into insomniac metacognition, we also take the first few steps into modern philosophy, retracing those taken by Descartes. For just as we compose ourselves for slumber by banishing thoughts of deadlines and traffic, Descartes, in his Discourse on Method, 1637, and Meditations on First Philosophy, 1641, similarly attempts to clear his head. He banishes his received ideas, his philosophical inheritance rejecting them as doubtable and thus reduces himself to a self-considering thinking thing a thinking thing that thinks about thinking as such. In doing so, he makes his great discovery, Jipens, Dong Jisui. I think, therefore I am. This, of course, is the idea that thinking per se provides self-evident proof of existence. And yet, just like our hypothetical insomniac, 
Descartes soon starts to worry about the existence of some alien agency impinging on his mental processes. What if there were a malicious supreme being who was deceiving me about my every thought? Would this evil demon be able to challenge the ontological certainty of I think therefore I am? No, Descartes insists. I may be utterly mistaken about there being a world, a sky, and bodies, but so long as I think there are these things, I have at least the assurance that I, the thinking thing, exist. But would this kind of certainty give comfort to our insomniac, increasingly bewildered by the uncontrollability and interminability of cognition? The persistence of thinking poses problems for the insomniac, not only in that it gives him or her insomnia, but also in that it problematizes Descartes as Cogito. For, if my thinking goes on unstoppably against my will, if I lack self-control at even this fundamental level, what right do I have to say that it is truly I who does this thinking? We assume that I to be a thing we can control, so what use is it to say Jisui I am when, in lacking this power to stop thinking, I am alien to myself? As an insomniac, I discover that Descartes as a demon might be already deceiving me not about objects, but about subject, it doesn't dupe me into thinking that things are when they are not, but into thinking that it is really I who am thinking at all. To the insomniac, I think therefore I am, contains an ill-founded and presumptuous I, let us linger yet longer over this question of the nature of the I, the status of the thinker. For it is a question that loomed large over much of the 19th century in the form of the mind-brain problem, and this was debated most intensely at the same time the insomnia epidemic began to plague industrial societies. Indeed, Nietzsche cites this intractability of mind in his rejection of the Cartesian expression, I think, by claiming, a thought comes when it wants, and that one might rather say, it thinks. But issue in the mind-brain problem was precisely this notion of self-control, of whether free will in thinking and doing was real or illusory. On one side of the debate, those we will call the movers, held, like Descartes, that humans were ultimately in control of their cognition and action. They believed that humans possessed an immaterial power of mind, a free and unconstrained will, an independent plan, a telos that could preemptively move objects, both mental, a train of thought, and physical, a hand in order to pick up a cup. It was this capacity of humans to insert new possibilities into the unfolding of physical nature that, according to Descartes, set us above animals. For him, animals were, on the contrary, mere automata, incapable of going against what material causality impelled them to do. Prominent movers may include respected scientists and thinkers such as Lord Kelvin, James Clark Maxwell, James Sully, Nathaniel Shaler, and indeed most religiously minded non-scientists and even, ostensibly, the majority of persons. Opposing them were those we will call the moved, William James's automatists, that is, positivist, materialist scientists like Thomas Henry Huxley, Henry Maudsley, Herbert Spencer, John Tyndall, William Alexander Hammond, and George Millerbeard. The moved thought that humans were no different than Cartesian animals, and thus what we commonly thought of as the mind, the thinking faculty, the rational soul, or the will, was for us and every other creature more or less determined by, moved by, electrochemical interactions, frictions, and pressures, that is, the physical. Our every action even at the level of our thinking was contingent upon the state of materials that always took precedence over our ability to act upon them, and that any sense we might have of having a free will governing our thoughts and actions was essentially an illusion. The moved would claim, for instance, that we pick up a cup not because we were to do so in any independent way, but because it is filled with water and we are compelled by a general corporeal desiccation called thirst, every meal we eat, and every cup we drink, illustrates the mysterious control of mind by matter. Our thoughts were mere afterthoughts. Both sides of the debate took the issue of falling asleep as their companion. For the moved, sleep was a state in which the illusion of free will was suspended. It was thus thought to provide a clearer view of the natural law governed bodily processes through which mental phenomena might eventually be explained. Researchers thus wanting to turn mind into body even looked eagerly upon the sleep-like phenomena of hypnotism and somnambulism wherein, according to Lorraine Daston, the so-called higher mental functions of speech and of complex muscle coordination were susceptible to a purely automatic or physiological explanation. The movers proposed, conversely, that sleep confirmed the existence of an independent, supradonating, volitional consciousness. The American paleontologist Nathaniel Shaler (1841–1906) considered the apparent will-less state of slumber to be no less than a demonstration of our usual position of will-possessed preeminence over mere animals. In going to sleep, we send ourselves on a kind of hierarchical descent back down to their level. We begin by giving up our will, which slowly floats away from us like a vapor before the wind. As sleep takes hold, we shed individualized identities, social roles, job titles. 
no more, philosopher, or jurist, or mechanic, we become generically human. Sleep deepens and we devolve into beasts. Then we sink yet further into a primordial psychical use of fear-induced nightmares. Shaler concludes, it is only by studying the behavior of the mind during the coming and going of sleep that we can hope to understand the peculiar relations of the will to the rest of the mental capacities. It is only in that part of our lives that we can expect to trace, however dimly, the development of those powers with which we find ourselves possessed. Yet the move may, of course, point to the contrary evidence that falling asleep is determined, not by powers with which we find ourselves possessed, but by forces largely beyond our control. Insomnia, for instance, would reveal as naively optimistic Shayla's depiction of a volition that somehow effortlessly floats away when convenient. For the insomniac, volition doggedly persists like an occupying force. According to the mood, we don't possess will. It possesses us in the form of physical determinism. The English psychiatrist Henry Maudsley, 1835-1918, provides an anecdote illustrative of the materialist position. He tells how a boy was kicked in the head by a horse and rendered insensible, only to come to his senses when loose fragments of the skull were removed. Doctors were able to apply direct pressure to the brain, whereupon the boy's thoughts were stopped and started again as easily and certainly as the engineer stops and starts his locomotive. Such experiments were thought to show how sleep might be determined by physical, mechanical processes in nature rather than by the volition of the would-be sleeper. Yet, further scrutiny of the phenomena of sleep and sleeplessness problematized strictly necessitarian or non-teleological conceptions, keeping many otherwise materially-minded psychophysiologists from wholly abandoning the idea of a metaphysical will. Scottish philosopher Dugald Stewart (1753–1828) claims that the paradox of willing to sleep itself proved that the will could never be fully suspended therein. He recognized that when we want to get to sleep, we first must try to mimic willlessness, but only as a kind of ruse for how might one willfully activate a lack of volition. If it were necessary that volition should be suspended before we fall asleep, it would be impossible for us, by our own efforts to hasten the moment of rest. The very supposition of such efforts is absurd, for it implies a continued will to suspend the acts of the will. Other phenomena further suggested that free will persists even after one manages to get to sleep. English associationist psychologist James Sully, 1842-1923, notes how in dreams one might be conscious of voluntarily going through a series of actions and maintain something resembling an exercise of voluntary attention. It was also popularly imagined that the persistence of the will in sleep was evinced by the ability of some to rouse themselves into consciousness at a predetermined hour. English physician William Benjamin Carpenter, 1813-1885, holds that some people while sleeping can listen for, and waken from, a clock or bell's slightest provocation, despite the fact that their slumbers are not broken by noises of far greater intensity. Maudsley, however, contends that, although we might have an impression of exerting our will while we are dreaming, we are not, in such instances, truly ourselves. Our sense of personal identity is confused and seemingly lost, and indeed, we do absurd and perhaps transcendently criminal things in the most matter-of-fact way. Even the impressions we have of exerting our will while very much awake, such as this notion that we might have of being able to rouse ourselves from sleep at a predetermined hour, would similarly be held as a mere illusion. English biologist Thomas Huxley, 1825-1895, for instance, would assert that the feeling we call volition is not the cause of the voluntary act, but simply the symbol in consciousness of that stage of the brain which is the immediate cause of the act, and this would likely cause the movers to scoff that, in this case, the symbol predictively preceded the event by six hours and thus could hardly be considered mere epiphenomenal happenstance. We could go on with arguments and counter-arguments between these two entrenched camps, attempting to accommodate all the intricacies of the mind-brain problem and to parse the distinctions between dualism, monism, neutral monism, idealism, and physicalism until we find that there are, after all, far more than two camps. But the point here is not to settle this old debate. Rather it is to suggest how the debate itself was enormously unsettling to many Victorian self-conceptions. For just as the onset of new media, like the telegraph, can posit a message that trumps the individual instances of communicative content, so too can an ideological or scientific revolution say something coherent about its serial irrespective of a counter-propositional heterogeneity of opinion or even because of it. A range of sources characterizes minds as unsettled by the controversies surrounding the proposed physical origin of consciousness.